Hello, and welcome to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Cotter. In 1871, the workers of Paris rose up and seized control of the city, establishing the first socialist government in world history, the Paris Commune. Although it was rather short-lived, the Commune looms large over the history of France and of left-wing politics. In this first episode of our series on the Commune, we first take a deep dive into the politics and society of the Second French Empire, so we can better understand the circumstances that allowed for its fall and the eventual rise of the Commune. Before we begin, I'd just like to thank everybody for listening to the first four episodes of the podcast. Our series on the life of Baron Roman von Ungern Sternberg was a big hit. I can only hope that this series on the Paris Commune is able to replicate its success. And now, without any further ado, let's begin. The year was 1870. Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, the nephew of his better-known namesake, Emperor Napoleon I, had been the French head of state for the past 22 years. He initially came into power when he was elected president of the newly formed Second French Republic in 1848. In 1851, with his term as president coming to an end, Louis Napoleon found that he was unwilling to relinquish his power. So he dissolved the French National Assembly and extended his term as president indefinitely. A year later, Louis Napoleon, emulating his uncle, crowned himself Emperor Napoleon III and proclaimed the foundation of the Second French Empire. Now, what Louis Napoleon, now Napoleon III, had done was flagrantly illegal. The French Constitution did not give the President the authority to dissolve the National Assembly at will, much less to dissolve the Republic itself, and to declare himself Emperor. Napoleon III claimed his mandate to rule came from the people of France themselves. Immediately following the coup of 1851, he held a referendum. The language of the referendum was dressed up in democratic-sounding frills, but the question it posed to the electorate was simple. Did they, or did they not approve of Napoleon III's seizure of power? The people of France voted yes, by a large margin. Napoleon held a second referendum in 1852 to legitimize his ascension as emperor. This he managed to win by an even larger margin. Naturally, the ratio of 76% to 4% screams sham election to anyone with even a marginal understanding of politics. The rule of Emperor Napoleon III was clearly illegitimate, and nearly everyone understood this, even if they dared not speak it out loud for fear of repression. Even the newly crowned emperor himself recognized this, at least tacitly. However, political opposition to Napoleon III had been thoroughly broken during the coup of 1851, when many working-class French citizens took up arms to defend the democratic institutions they had only so recently won, only for 200 to be gunned down in the streets of Paris by Louis-Napoleon's soldiers. Around 26,000 were arrested in the wake of the coup, of whom 12,000 were sentenced to exile in France's various colonial holdings, especially Guiana. In the years following the coup, arrests of political dissidents continued apace, but, as author Rupert Christensen points out, quote, the Second Empire managed to sustain itself more by propaganda than repression. It was a quiet tyranny, rarely beastly, often merciful, sometimes benevolent. It may have been an autocracy, but it was not a prison. End quote. However, Napoleon III must have realized, to use an old idiom, that he could not rule using the stick alone. He had to introduce a carrot to placate the restive population and to ensure his regime's long-term stability. That carrot took the form of economic prosperity. France was by no means a poor country in the mid-19th century, but it lacked far behind other European powers, chiefly Britain, in terms of its modernization and economic growth. 
Napoleon III sought to rectify this. To this end, he first oversaw the creation of massive new banking firms, from which the government was able to borrow extensively to fund new projects. Between the new strong financial sector and a new free trade agreement with Great Britain, the French economy saw a great influx of capital. Over the next two decades, industrial production nearly doubled. 16,500 kilometers, or 10,200 miles, of railroads were constructed. Another sign of this economic prosperity was the creation of the department stores, the most successful of which brought in upwards of 5 million francs a year. Napoleon III's most ambitious domestic project was nothing less than a complete modernization of the city of Paris. Described by one contemporary author as a massive workshop of putrefaction, the Paris of the mid-19th century bore little resemblance to the modern-day City of Lights. A combination of industrialization and subsequent immigration led to massive overcrowding in the city. Overcrowding combined with poor sanitation to make the city very susceptible to disease. Several deadly outbreaks of cholera ravaged the city in recent decades. These and other adverse effects of overcrowding were most acutely felt in the northern and eastern quarters of the city, where Paris's working-class population was concentrated. In 1853, Napoleon III commissioned the Prefect of the Seine, George Haussmann, to, in his words, give the city some fresh air. Haussmann had his work cut out for him. Hundreds of residences dating back to the medieval period were demolished, and new modern buildings were constructed in their place. The previously narrow, winding streets were widened into broad new boulevards. A common assertion is that this was intended to limit the potential for would-be revolutionaries to construct barricades, and while this isn't entirely true, the widening of the streets served primarily to open up the city for commercialization. See the aforementioned development of the department store. The sewer systems were modernized and new parks soon dotted the city. The suburbs of Paris were annexed into the city proper, and the population surged to two million people. The era of the Second French Empire was one of economic prosperity. Thanks to Napoleon III's liberal economic policies, the bourgeoisie were resurgent. Bankers, stockbrokers, factory owners, upper-level bureaucrats, founders of department stores, even members of the nobility, all had reaped the rewards. But as these people accumulated wealth and power, the working class was left behind. As previously stated, living conditions within Paris were abysmal, even after housemanization. In terms of population density, the city was comparable to modern-day Mumbai. Workers were crammed into tiny apartment buildings with poor sanitation. Houseman's renovations, despite intending to improve living conditions for all, only laid bare the ever-widening chasm between the haves and the have-nots. While those who could afford to lived in elegant neighborhoods were replete with mansions, opera houses, and cafes, Houseman's decision to demolish so many medieval residences in the center of the city left many working-class people without homes and forced them to move to the slums on the outskirts of town. An influx of laborers from the countryside only exacerbated the problem. For those workers who opted to remain, rent in the newly gentrified city shot up considerably. All the while, the wage of the average worker had just barely kept up with inflation, and was hardly enough to live on. The memory of the revolutions of the past century loomed large in the minds of all French citizens. In 1789, 1830, and 1848, the people of the working class had been the foot soldiers of revolution, doing most of the fighting and dying, and all they had to show for it was a new repressive regime to replace the last, and no improvement in their economic standing. 
In the immediate aftermath of the coup of 1851, working-class areas of Paris had been hit hardest by Napoleon III's reprisals. In the words of historian Alastair Horne, quote, The workers of Paris would never forgive Louis Napoleon for destroying the republic that they had created. End quote. Throughout most of Napoleon III's reign, collective bargaining was illegal. If workers attempted to strike, they would be coerced into returning to work by the authorities. Later on in his reign, Napoleon III reluctantly allowed workers the right to form unions, although they would be under close police supervision and as such would be severely restricted in what they could and could not do. This gesture ultimately proved to be meaningless, as many workers' organizations had already gone underground. Ideas of socialism, an ideology still in its infancy, had begun to permeate the consciousness of the working class. It was during that time that the concept of socialism began to turn away from the utopian ideals that characterized the ideas and efforts of socialists at the beginning of the 19th century towards a more scientific and revolutionary philosophy. This is in part thanks to the writings of one Karl Marx, whose Communist Manifesto, published 22 years prior, advocated for a violent overthrow of the ruling class by the workers. In the early 1860s, the International Working Men's Association, known to historians as the First International, was formed. This was, in effect, a congress of socialist political parties, trade unions, and various leftist organizations from across the world. By 1870, the First International was capable of wielding considerable influence over the French workers, as they were responsible for organizing a few considerable strikes in the country, including a major one at Crusoe in January of 1870. Before we go any further, however, I will first provide an overview of the various political factions that will be at play in our narrative going forward. Firstly, we have the Bonapartists, supporters of Emperor Napoleon III. Now, Bonapartism was not a political ideology per se. Broadly speaking, the Bonapartist's political beliefs were modeled on the example set by Napoleon I, social liberalism and a centralized state under a strong executive. Bonapartists might be best described as autocratic liberals, as paradoxical as that may seem. There were also monarchists of the anti-Bonapartist variety. They fell into two camps, the Legitimists and the Orleanists, who respectively supported the restoration of the Houses Bourbon and Orléans to the throne. Both tended to be more conservative than their Bonapartist counterparts. Of the two, the Legitimists were more explicitly reactionary, while the Orleanists were willing to accept at least some of the democratic institutions that emerged from the First French Revolution. However, most opposition to the Second Empire was republican in nature. It is important to keep in mind that, unlike in the context of the modern United States, in the context of 19th century France, the label republican encapsulates a rather wide breadth of political thought. On the right side of the republican spectrum were the so-called moderates. While they advocated for a republican form of government, they were still rather conservative, both socially and economically. Although the term was not common parlance at the time, the ideology of the moderate republicans might be best described as classical liberalism. On the far left of the spectrum, we have a group of assorted factions categorized as the revolutionaries. The most prominent group were the Blanquistes. The Blanquistes take their name from Louis-Auguste Blanqui a prominent revolutionary theorist and professional malcontent, who had spent the last three decades or so in and out of prison for various insurrectionary activities. Blanqui advocated for the overthrow of government by a small clique of highly educated individuals 
who would then utilize the power of the state to implement socialism. Russian revolutionary Vladimir Lenin would later advance a very similar theory. Unlike Lenin, however, Blanqui had few ideas about how to organize a post-revolutionary society. For most Blanquists, including Blanqui himself, the overthrow of the state was both the means and the end. Given the nature of their ideology, the Blanquists were relatively few in number, but they were also the most well-established and experienced groups on the revolutionary left. Also relatively few in number were the internationalists, members of the International Working Men's Society, or the First International. It would be inaccurate to call them Marxists, but these were the forebearers of modern Marxism. The vast majority of revolutionaries did not adhere to any explicitly defined ideology, and as such are rather difficult to classify. Historians have taken to calling this amorphous group the Jacobins, or Neo-Jacobins, on account of their veneration of the French Revolution of 1792, their nationalistic outlook, and their fierce commitment to the revolutionary ideals of liberty, equality, and fraternity. Situated between the revolutionaries and the moderates were the so-called radical republicans. As the name implies, they were further to the left than the moderates, but they were still liberal republicans first and foremost. Instead of being a unifying force between the far right and the far left, the radical republicans would ultimately prove to be too revolutionary for the moderates, and too moderate for the revolutionaries. In January 1870, a dispute erupted between radical republican journalist Pakal Grousset and Prince Pierre Bonaparte a cousin of the emperor. The prince had taken sides against Grousset in an already ongoing feud between his publication and a Bonapartist one. He publicly denounced Grousset as a coward and a traitor, to which Grousset reasonably took offense. He sent two apprentice journalists to meet with the prince to set the terms for a duel. Details about the ensuing events are rather unclear and shrouded in controversy, but what we do know for sure is that this meeting ended with Pierre Bonaparte shooting one of Grousset's envoys, a young journalist named Victor Noir, dead. For Noir's murder, Prince Bonaparte was merely imposed with a fine. The public was outraged at the injustice. Noir's funeral was held on January 12th. Nearly 100,000 people attended the funeral procession, which quickly turned into an anti-Bonapartist demonstration. More radical elements in attendance wanted to lead the procession to the Tuileries Palace, and drag the prince out themselves. Ultimately, they were unsuccessful, and the funeral procession turned protest eventually dispersed without incident. On July 19, 1870, the Empire of France declared war against the Kingdom of Prussia, initiating the ill-fated Franco-Prussian War. The causes of this conflict are rather obscure, and while I will provide a brief explanation in the following minutes, I will most likely cover them in more detail in a future episode, or series of episodes, about German unification or some such topic. But I digress. Earlier in the year, a prince of the house of Hohenzollern, the Prussian royal family, had been offered the throne of the Kingdom of Spain. The French feared that a Spanish-Prussian alliance would shift the balance of power, which the states of Europe had striven since the end of the Napoleonic Wars to maintain in Prussia's favor. The situation was nearly diffused in July 1870, when Prince Leopold withdrew his candidacy. France sent diplomats to King Wilhelm I of Prussia, insisting that he keep out of Spanish affairs for good. The king had his secretary send a telegram containing the details of these talks to the Prussian Chancellor, Otto von Bismarck. Bismarck, ever the cunning statesman, altered the message to make the uneventful exchange seem more heated than it was in reality. This message, known as the Ems Dispatch, was soon released to the press, 
and it was not long before it reached France. Bismarck's aim in this was to provoke France into declaring war against Prussia, allowing for Prussia and the smaller German states to unify against a common foe, thus advancing his ultimate goal of German unification. Yes, yes, I know it's all very complicated, but the important part is that Bismarck's plan went off without a hitch. Nearly all sectors of French society were enraged at this perceived insult, and began agitating for war against Prussia. Napoleon III had to be watching these developments with bated breath. In recent years, he had begun to see the cracks forming in his regime. Seeking to get ahead of this, he issued another plebiscite in May of 1870, asking the electorate if they approved of the liberal reforms he had made to the constitution in the last decade. He had to know if he still commanded the approval of the people. Once again, voters voted overwhelmingly in the emperor's favor, but crucially, for the first time in French history, over 8% of the electorate voted against the referendum. An ill omen, to be sure. Napoleon III believed that if he gave the people what they wanted, a war against the Prussian agitators, he would once again win the support of the people. Karl Marx would later write that this political maneuver was equivalent to the coup of 1851, in terms of its ambition, and in terms of its disastrous consequences. And so it was in the summer of 1870 that Emperor Napoleon III so eagerly plunged France into a war that it was by no means prepared to fight. First of all, the Prussian military was no pushover. In fact, their skill on the battlefield was practically unmatched in all of Europe. In fact, it had taken no less of a military genius than Napoleon I to hand them their last significant defeat in the field. Just four years prior, Prussia soundly defeated Austria in a war that lasted only seven weeks. France was also entering into a war without allies. By provoking France into declaring war first, Bismarck ensured that France would be seen as the aggressor in this conflict, and thus the other states of Europe would be hesitant to come to its aid. Prussia, on the other hand, could count on the southern German states of Baden, Württemberg, and Bavaria to join them in the war. In spite of all the odds stacked against them, however, French morale was high when the Emperor left the capital for the front lines on the 28th of July. Meanwhile, the Prussians, taking advantage of the slow and disorganized mobilization efforts of the French army, began to advance into the country, winning decisive battles at Wissemberg, Sphirchen, Wirth, and Gravelot. As news of these defeats reached the capital, the populace that had so eagerly called for war not even a month earlier turned to despair. In an ominous portend of what was to come, on August 14th, a group of would-be socialist revolutionaries attacked a fire station in Paris in an attempt to seize arms, but they were fended off. Their leader, a man named Emile Ayudes, was arrested and sentenced to death, but events in the near future would lead to the commutation of that sentence. The worst French defeat came at the beginning of September. The army of Chalon, en route to relieve forces under siege in the city of Metz, was encircled by the Prussian army in the town of Sedan. When the French attempted to escape from the city, they were decisively defeated by the Prussians. The French army shattered. Of the initial force of 120,000, 18,000 were killed or wounded. 100,000 men surrendered, including Napoleon III himself. Held captive by the Prussians, he sent a report of what had happened to his wife, the Empress Eugenie, whom he had left behind to serve as regent while he was on campaign. The Empress refused to believe the news. She flew into a rage and exclaimed, quote, No, an emperor does not capitulate. He is dead. They are trying to hide it from me. Why does he not kill himself? Does he not know that he has dishonored himself? End quote. The news reached the public soon afterwards. Anti-Bonapartist sentiments reached a fever pitch. 
With public order quickly breaking down, the panicked empress offered the reins of government to Adolf Thiers, an arch-conservative elder statesman who had served as prime minister thrice before. Thiers refused to take on this responsibility for now, but this will certainly not be the last we see of him. Nevertheless, Thiers' refusal to take power did not stop the empress from fleeing the palace with as many valuables as her and her servants could carry. With the help of Thomas Evans, her American dentist, Empress Eugenie was able to abscond off to Britain aboard a yacht, abandoning her nation to its fate. Because the former emperor and empress Napoleon and Eugenie will not be relevant to our narrative going forward, I feel compelled to relay the details of their post-imperial lives. Also, I'm padding for time here because this episode was a little on the short end, so uh, you can just consider this a bonus. Following his capture on the battlefield of Sedan, Napoleon III was taken to a castle near the German town of Kassel, no pun intended. He was held by the Prussians in rather comfortable captivity for five months. During that time, Otto von Bismarck toyed with the idea of reinstalling the emperor as the head of a French puppet government, but ultimately rejected the notion. Following the conclusion of the Franco-Prussian War in January 1871, Napoleon III was released from prison. Nearly bankrupt, the disgraced former emperor sold off his remaining assets before going to join his wife in England. There, they lived rather comfortably in an estate in the countryside of Kent. But it seems that Napoleon had lost the will to live. Only two years later, he fell seriously ill and died at the age of 64. His defeat at Sedan haunted him to his dying breath, as his last words were, quote, Is it true that we are not cowards at Sedan? End quote. Empress Eugenie outlived both her husband and her only son, coincidentally also named Napoleon, who enlisted in the British Army and was killed in action during the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879. She even lived to see the collapse of the German monarchy that had consigned her and her family to this fate. The former empress spent her final years supporting the British and French war efforts against the German-led Central Powers. She finally died in 1920, at the age of 94. Anyway, with all that out of the way, we return to Paris, September 4th, 1870, two days following the defeat and capitulation of the French army at Sedan. As I said before, anti-Bonapartist sentiments had reached a fever pitch. Throughout the city, mobs of Parisians angrily demanded the abdication of the emperor and the abolition of the empire. One such mob descended upon the Palais Bourbon, an ancien regime palace that had since been repurposed for use as a meeting place for France's legislative body, the National Assembly. When the mob forced its way into the meeting chamber, moderate Republican statesman Jules Favre took the podium and declared the Second French Empire had come to an end. But Favre insisted that the new republic be proclaimed not at the Palais Bourbon, but at the Hôtel de Ville. The purpose of this move seems rather arbitrary, but it was rather important symbolically. In moving from the old royal palace to the Hôtel de Ville, or the City Hall, Favre was disassociating the new government from the monarchy and associating it instead with the revolution of 1789. Later that day, at the Hôtel de Ville, Léon Gambetta, another Republican statesman, officially declared the foundation of the Third French Republic before a massive crowd. Given the dire straits of the nation, it was decided that a provisional government of national defense would be formed. Elections were postponed until after the war. For the time being, the government of national defense would be made up of an assembly of the deputies of Paris. The mob, being made up of Parisian civilians, were not necessarily opposed to such a thing. Those on the left, however, were skeptical of the new government from the very beginning. In the words of Prosper Olivier Lissagere, 
the author of one of the best first-hand accounts of these events, quote, Twelve individuals took them from They invoked no other title than their mandate as representatives of Paris, and declared themselves legitimate by popular acclamation, end quote. In the government of national defense, leftist elements were underrepresented in favor of more moderate and conservative Republicans such as Favre. Recognizing that this may cause them problems in the future, the new government offered a position to Victor-Henri Rochefort, a radical Republican polemicist for whom the crowd was clamoring. This was basically an empty gesture, however, as Rochefort's position held no actual responsibilities. The new government still needed a head of state. None volunteered for the challenging position, so the new government had to select someone. The obvious choice was General Louis-Jules Trochu, the military governor of Paris. He was offered the position of interim president, which he accepted. Trochu was popular with the Republicans because of his frequent and public disagreements with the emperor. That being said, he was certainly no revolutionary, and upon his inauguration, he promised to uphold the principles of God, family, and property. Meanwhile, the French army was in tatters. Over 100,000 men had been taken prisoner at Sedan. Somewhere between 150 and 160,000 were still trapped under siege in the city of Metz, some 280 kilometers east of the capital. Under the personal command of King Wilhelm I, a Prussian field army around 250,000 strong was en route to Paris, and more would come to reinforce them should Metz and other fortress towns in the east surrender. The Prussians faced little opposition as they steadily marched westward across the French countryside. And yet, the mood in Paris immediately following the declaration of the Republic was jubilant. A quote from Alastair Horne. Throughout the city, an atmosphere of unrestrained carnival reigned. Evidently, nobody shared Goncourt's sober thoughts about the new regime. The town presented more the appearance of a grand national fete, rather than the capital of the country who had just received the shock of the greatest capitulation and defeat known in all of its history. It was a sparkling, sunny day. No blood had been shed, and all Paris turned out in its Sunday best to celebrate the most joyous revolution it had ever had. End quote. All throughout Paris, crowds chanted down with the empire, long live Trochu, long live the Republic. They sang the Marseillaise and other patriotic songs, and triumphantly flew the tricolor flag of the Republic. A mob burst into the Tuileries Palace and made off with some of the valuables that the Empress had left behind in haste. Buildings and street signs bearing the name of the deposed emperor were defaced. Political prisoners were released, and exiles steadily streamed back into the city. Many Parisians seemed to believe that now that Napoleon III had been deposed, the Prussians had no further quarrel with them. And besides, even if they did, surely the government of national defense would be their salvation. The stated purpose of the government of national defense was the expulsion of the Prussians from the country. In those early days, Favre melodramatically declared that France would not yield to Prussia an inch of territory nor a single stone of the fortresses, a phrase that those in government would repeat ad nauseum in the following months. With a massive, unopposed Prussian army en route to Paris and a shaky new government in charge of making preparations for an inevitable siege, it still seemed that nobody in the city knew how bad things were going to get. Tune in again in two weeks' time as we see how bad things get as Paris languages under siege with no end in sight. Until then, I'd like to thank you very much for listening. If you like this week's show, please feel free to leave a favorable review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with your friends and family on and off social media. 
For regular show updates, you can follow me on Twitter, at KaiserWillemII, or alternatively, you can like the show's Facebook page. Uh, links will be in the description. Additionally, if you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, or even suggestions for future series, please feel free to email the show at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Well, until two weeks' time, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. I'm your host, William Connor, signing off.